Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast which puts brilliant people together with brilliant restaurants and a superb menu. I order loads of food, I order a bit of drink if it's appropriate, and I get them to talk because I have found that the best conversations happen over restaurant tables. And I should know, I've been the restaurant critic for The Observer for 20 years. This time, it's PowerPoint king and comedian Dave Gorman. And we put on our rider fresh fruit. And that's what happens when you're approaching 50. It used to be some few bottles of cheap lager, and now it's fresh fruit, please. Oh, the glamour. Yeah. Dave Gorman uh, was a pescatarian, but now he says he eats everything. So fine, I decided to bring him to a steakhouse. I brought him to the Guildhall branch of Hawksmoor. What they don't know about steaks isn't worth knowing. Uh, it's a wonderful building. It's a wonderful space full of parquet wood floors and wood panelling and a serious menu full of prime beef. Should we get inside? Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Very well. Good. Walk this way. Lovely to meet nice you. Nice to meet you also. And Josh, who will be serving us. Hi, Josh. Nice to meet you also. I was looking at your dietary requirements, yes. which we always send out, yeah. and um, you were pescatarian? I was for quite a long time. Is that why you moved to Bournemouth, to be closer <laughs> to the source? No, I'd, al- I'd already given up my pescatarian life by the time we moved to Bournemouth. Or were you channelling Max Bygraves, who was, of course, a resident of Bournemouth <laughs> for was, a very long yeah, time? yeah. There's a good showbiz uh, history of <laughs> people who've moved that way. Mantovani, when, when we were looking to buy in Bournemouth, one of the houses, we didn't even go look at it, but it sort of showed up on Right Move and all of that, was previously owned by Mantovani. <laughs> and there is this weird showbiz retirement thing. I mean, there's, I guess people have There this. are some weird stories. Buddy Greco, who was the last of the Rat Pack, he had a huge hit yeah. in Vegas with Lady as a Tramp, yeah. ended his life at Westcliff-on-Sea. Right. <laughs> Why would that happen? I have no idea. I think he came on tour, met a lady, and, and, oh, yeah, okay. and, they, and uh, they retired to the Essex, yeah. you know, the Essex estuary. The minute but, you say met a lady, the rest of the story yeah, makes and that, sense. And yeah. But it was still Buddy <laughs> Greco. Um, but Bournemouth, any particular reason? Uh, to be nearer to my in-laws. Oh, okay. So we, we have a toddler. Life is just immeasurably easier when you've got some extended family around. Yeah, that's absolutely Simple true. Simple as that. You gave up on the pescatarianism was it at all because of just how bloody difficult it is to eat after a gig on the road we should talk about that it it wasn't it was years and years ago I'd been making a show I'd been in an edit for months one of those like so I was in a basement in Soho where somebody young says what can I get you for lunch and they bring you whatever you ask for but you don't see daylight for like three months and I came out of that experience feeling really unhealthy and 
And I just, I'm going to clean myself out. I'm just going to like, I'll go like a month without meat and just, not because I didn't want meat, because I wanted to put a, an extra level of thought into choosing food. So I cut it out for a month and I felt really good on it. And I, f- I found it really easy. And I thought, well, if I feel good and it's easy, I'll just How carry on. for? About 10 years, oh, maybe blimey. more. And then what happened? And then we had a baby and I, I wanted him to go to the table and what we serve him is what we're having. And we're not sort of giving that little bit of, okay, you can say no. So if daddy's in the corner going, mm, I don't want that, that's not really helpful for him in that level. And also, if my wife's doing most of the cooking, I'd rather she was cooking one meal that we all had Rather than doing something special. Something special on something. So it was just like, as a flag of convenience, I'm just going to yield and give it up. Um, talking of yielding, we are at Hawksmoor, which is yeah. a head of a steakhouse. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So are you, are, are you happy to go with it? Because or, or, yeah. uh, there's non-steak options yeah. on this menu. No, no, I've, uh, I've left myself hungry. Have you? Yeah. Because one of the things we could do is get them to do a, a kind of sharing thing of a variety of cuts. Okay. And they is put that... it in the middle of the table okay. and it would be... That sounds good to me, if you're up for that. And then if you choose a starter... Okay. Dave, uh, would you like still sparkling? Uh, still, please. Thank you. Let's go. I'll go smoked salmon as a as a starter, and okay. I will surrender completely to your whims. To our ways. Main. Yeah. What do you reckon to do a, a ribeye sirloin and rump? I mean, in terms of that, we could go ribeye and sirloin are quite similar in the sense. Well, yeah, they quite are. similar actually in the sense that we've got a lot of fat going on there. I can see what size primary we've got. Really small primary, but we can do that sliced and then maybe with a rump on the side because that's got a little bit more Perfect. flavour in there. Great. If not, we go. I'll do a small cut ribeye and a sirloin. We'll slice yeah. it all nice in the middle. Brilliant. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sides, chips. Uh, yeah. Beef dripping fries. Did you get buttered English greens? Did you? Yeah. Did that? Yeah. I will have. I'll have a small Caesar. So basically, so far, these are the two courses that Hemingway had before he shot himself. Is that right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite across this at the moment. So, uh, peppercorn? Yeah. And Bernays? Yeah. And that'll... Oh, I know. Sorry, I just have to do this. Can I have a side of thick-cut bacon, please? Just because yes, it's cool. quite good. Are you drinking? Uh, yeah. Glass of red? Glass yeah, of just the house, of red, house or... red. I won't have more than one. Oh, right. Well, then you can't, so. do the, you can't do the house red. I just refuse. Okay. What do you like? Uh, fruity. I'll tell you what, you choose and then come and tell us what I'm it is in, in a really I'm florid gonna way. Go I'm going to think about this one. Thank Perfect. you. Perfect, no problem. Was there any performing on your parents' side? Uh, no, not at all. But not you all. started going to youth theatres quite early, didn't you? Yeah, my, I, I'm, I think I was, just, I was just a complete show-off as a kid. My dad, bless him, he used to say uh, for years after, when I was at junior school, before I'd done any youth theatre, when I was like, 10 or whatever, my junior school did The Wizard of Oz and I was cast as the lion and had time of my life and my dad, for years afterwards, would say, it's still the best thing I've ever seen you do on stage. Right. <laughs> Does he still say it now? Yeah. Well, he's, he's no longer with us, well, but he, he would have said exactly. it not long He'd before. He'd come to the Royal Festival Hall for the new tour and go... Yeah, he still, he still thought that that junior school forms of that. Off the back of that, my mum took me and my twin brother to the local theatre to watch uh, a youth theatre performance. I can remember, there's a guy who I'm now a friend of who was in that show, his name is Sean Sibley, and he just looked like a rock star to me in this. He completely and utterly... So did you sit in the audience and think, I want to be out there? Absolutely, yeah. And my twin brother sat in the audience singing, there is nothing I would rather (laughs) be further from any of this. Uh, And afterwards, my mum did the... Would would you like to to be involved in in that? 
and I enrolled the next week and I was there. You said at one point that the person who led that youth theatre gave you a kind of lesson in professionalism. Yeah. You know, don't turn up just to have a laugh. Yeah, yeah. Turn up with a pencil. Absolutely. Always turn up on time, always carry a pencil, which I, I absolutely still sort of recite to myself to this day. And, and it used to annoy me when we'd turn up, and it was, you know, it's a youth theatre, and other kids would be giggling. And there'd be like 10 or so of us who were like, really, no, we, we're here to, to do this. Come on, let's do it. Do you still hold to that old maxim? Nobody's, I don't think, ever actually pinned down where it comes from that the world is run by the people who turn up. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Have you not? No. It's quite a good line, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's certainly true. It's, what can we do to stop some other people turning up? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there are a whole bunch of people we quite happily see not actually turn yeah. up and arrive yeah, at the yeah. door. You go to Manchester to read maths. Yes. You know, the clip at the bow is you drop out yeah. to do comedy. Yeah. Well, I, st- I started doing comedy. I didn't, it wasn't just on a whim. I'd started doing comedy at the end of my first year. Right. There was a tour that went round for Amnesty International. The people who are now really big names who were on it then were Frank Skinner and Joe Brand, but I don't think they would have been regarded as huge names in 89. Oh, look, we have wine oh, heading our way. How lovely. So we've gone for a Langer Nebbiolo. So it's like light and elegant. Mm-hmm. Like, got a very like, solid structure behind it, so lots of tannins. It's delicious. Light, elegant, really solid structure. It's the Dave Gorman of wines. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. I would have said it was the Dave Gorman of wines, whatever it said, you know. That. Of course, it, <laughs> robust and fruity. It yeah, would have, yeah, so the Dave uh, yeah, of course, yeah. So there's this. Thanks, it's very nice. In the afternoon of that show, Frank, who is still just in love with comedy, mm. used to run a workshop for aspiring comics. And it'd be two quid to do it, and that also went to Amnesty International. And every Sunday they were in a different university town. And my flatmates at the time were like, you're going to that. And I was like, I would, have, I would have been going to the gig at night. I went to every single comedy gig in Manchester at the time. But I'd never said a word to anyone about wanting to do comedy. But I had been secretly writing some, but I never told it to anyone. But my flatmates just knew me better than I knew myself. And they basically frog-marched me to the bus and, I, and, put, and said, you're going to that workshop. Carolina Hearn was there. She'd, she'd been doing it for a little while, but she was there as well. There's a bunch of us, probably... They told us it was like the best attended one of the tour. There was like 15, 20 people. So literally another 30 quid to Amnesty International for, for doing this. And Frank held court for a, an hour or so. Do you remember any of the stuff he said? Yeah, I do. That day? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and whether now, having you know, done more than enough gigs, yeah. what he said then still makes sense. Not only do I remember a lot of it, I also quote some of it at other people when they ask for advice, because um, it was that good. But he was talking about how you structure your set. And he said, the way I think of it is you're walking down a darkened alley and every joke is a light bulb and it casts a ray of light and the brighter bulbs will carry you further than the dimmer bulbs. So you want to start with a really big, bright bulb and it's going to get you part way. And, and you need to space them so that you're always in light. And if this bulb goes, it doesn't matter because these two are covering you. And... That is how you structure material, whether you're thinking about light bulbs or not. That is how you intuitively. He had an extremely visual material. metaphor then yeah. for the whole yeah, structure. Yeah. And, and I still quote that to people to this day a sensible way you of know building your set. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Have you told him that? You, yeah, does he absolutely. Knows you yeah, there? absolutely. He knows. That moment in Manchester. Yeah. Obviously, you mentioned Carolina Hearn. Yeah. Henry Normal, who people yeah. may not know because he ended up as a producer rather than a performer. Yeah. But he was, you know, one half of Baby Cow. Uh, yeah, he's, he's performing again now, actually. So he, he 
ended up forming a production company with Steve Coogan. Called Who was Baby also Cow. around. He was around. John Thompson. John Thompson, yeah. But it's quite a group of people. Yeah. Does talent find it, each other? I think what happens, because Manchester had such a small scene, you couldn't continue to exist if you had nothing. If you did one if open you spot... Sick, you weren't going to be able yeah, to you work. just gave up. You just, that was it. That was the end right. of the journey. Whereas London had so many clubs, people could persist for a decade without getting paid. You could, if you wanted to, you could do regular gigs and never, ever earn a red cent out of doing it. And you know what? Some of those people turned out good. Some of those people actually... Yeah, they needed... It was, they it needed was worth it. So a year of... That, that's not a criticism yeah. of that. But it's, that's also how it was. Whereas in Manchester, you just went nowhere so quickly if you were shit. You just had to give up. So it kind of became this supportive network. And, and when I started off, they just some promoters just started doing a new material night at a club called Band on the Wall. And Steve and, and John... Some Band on the Wall still there? Still going, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Steve Coogan, John Thompson, Carolina Hearn, Henry Normal, uh, a guy called Bob Dillinger who's no longer working... And a double act called Brute Farce were all sort of on the Manchester scene. Yeah, <laughs> they were all the regulars on it, and I was the new boy. And I was going to the promoters. Can I? Can I be on the gig? And the first week they went, No, Dave, you're not experienced enough. You're not experienced enough. And the second week they went, Come on, Dave, you're green. You're not ready for this. And then on the third gig, some of the others hadn't turned up, and they went, All right, Dave. You're in. Did you have material? I mean, yeah, when you start, when you're 19, you just write constantly. You write, you write too much. You should be honing. You should be perfecting your 10. And I was writing loads because he just had By 10, you're 10 minutes. Yes, yeah. Uh, and then I just became a regular on that, that little scene. And when I look back on it, what we had was... Well, you could sort of... John and Steve were both character acts and impressionists. So you sort of had an impressionist, a character act. You had a female character act. You had a music, Caroline, yeah. yeah. You had a musical act in Bob Dylan. You had a guitar. Uh, you had a double act doing sort of sketches, and you had Henry Normal doing stand-up poetry. And we sort of had one of everything. What there were, were never you, two people competing to be in the same box. I started off doing stand-up poetry, and then I became just a one-liner merchant for a while. Brute farce. Yeah. So uh, the double first, act. the first time I did Edinburgh. There was a guy called uh, Bob Dillinger. He was doing a show in Edinburgh where he was hosting two other acts. And one of the acts were going to be Brute Fast, this double act. And they had to drop out at quite short notice. And I was asked if I would fill the slot. And I'd never done Edinburgh before, and it seemed like a good opportunity. And I shouldn't have done it, really, because I wasn't ready. But I was not listed anywhere. I was in the brochure as Brute Fast. Maybe one in five gigs were were good and some were average and two in five were a bit shit and I had one really bad night and we got a review and the review said uh, Brute Fast is a strange young man who mumbles as he walks about the stage <laughs> you didn't have to take the flat oh, beautiful did, did you ever come across them did they yeah. go you yeah, bastard yeah yeah they were friends of mine yeah yeah <laughs> got back to Manchester and they were fuming they didn't go to Edinburgh and they still got a bad review Oh, we've got some food arriving. So we've got Caesar salad. It's a Donington Caesar, so Donington is... We get that from Neil Jard down at Borough. That's the cheese, yeah? Yes, that's the cheese, uh, grated over the top. You've got some fresh anchovies, um, some croutons, sourdough croutons, and some romaine lettuce. And then over your side, we've got some soda bread. 
uh, smoked salmon, which we get from down, actually up in Scotland, the salmon mm -hmm. comes from, and then uh, cream cheese that we make in-house every day. Very nice. Yeah, no problem. Enjoy, guys. Thank you. Do you, do you remember the first gag you ever wrote that felt to you like a proper, fully formed joke? It's quite a reductive question, but it does please me. Maybe not the, <laughs> maybe not the first. Do you know what? I used this recently in something else. This is how... So, if it's good, in that don't let it go. Roller decks yeah. thing, you know, a topic came up and I used it there. Uh, I used to have a line, it's, it's a proper one-liner. Uh, I don't know what you think about Michael Jackson and these blackmail allegations, but I think he definitely used to be one. <laughs> Which, you know, that's a, it's a very neat joke. It's a it's very, a very neat, neat, neat joke. joke, yeah. It's in the new series. <laughs> like, yeah, it really is. Is it really? <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be, but it just fell out because, because you have that Rolodex of things you've done in the past and the topic came up and do, out do, it do, does, a, does somebody stand with a flag going, and now vintage comedy? Yeah, no, <laughs> just don't acknowledge that's what it is. But <laughs> If it's good and exactly. time has passed. Exactly. I've Absolutely. been writing the restaurant column for The Observe for 20 years and I reckon every four years, if there's a really good gag and it fits, the, it, it can yeah, have another absolutely. ride yeah, around. Yeah. And, and, you know, if anybody calls me, I just say, look, it's personal homage. I'm intrigued that when you started off, mm -hmm. you were not a John Hegley tribute act, but kind yeah. of... Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Did, you did poetry. Yeah, I loved John. John had become sort of my hero from those Edinburghs. His was the, the first ticket I booked. Which should remind people who aren't aware, although it seems strange, but John Hegley's great. Yeah, he's he's poet, he, he's still a remarkable poet and and comic. Very sort of school teachery persona. It's sort of it's his hands. I'm transfixed by his gestures and precision of movement. And, and but stuff. was it also that if you wrote poems to perform, yeah. you've created a form on stage where you know what you have to do? Yes. Because if you're a stand-up, you're basically meant to be having a conversation with the audience. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to pull a strand here. You'll, you'll see it come No, together. no, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a MacGuffin. Yeah. There's a conceit for why you're on a stage that isn't to do with the getting of laughs, but you are now getting the laughs. Everything all good with the starters? Very good, thank you. Perfect. Brilliant. And also, the cooking of the meat, yeah. happy with medium rare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. That's Sorry, just to see. Yeah. Because if you said no, it has to be well done, I'd just gone yeah, fuck yeah. off back to As long as the, the word medium was in there, then I'm fine. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was 19. I was a very young 19 when I started doing it as well. I, I wasn't very grown up. I hadn't had the gap year. I hadn't really cut the apron strings and I had nothing to talk about but what I was good with was a sort of facility with language so the material at that point was sort of a computer program could have written it you know it was playing with language and words and being a bit clever clever because I had nothing else in Modern Life is Goodish, the found poems. Did they did the found poems first come up in Modern Life is Goodish or had you done them elsewhere before? I did them on the radio first and then live and then Modern Life is good. So, the fan poems for anybody who's had the bad taste not to come across them... <laughs> is, plenty of people. Yeah, well, is you putting together a piece of poetry from the commentary below the line on the internet. Yeah. And they're performing. Is there a link between what you did back right at the beginning of your career and the fan poem performed beautifully, I have to say, with a, with a quartet or...? A, a, normally a string quartet. Um, we should all have one of those. Absolutely. No, I don't think there is. I think... It was, it was just a conceit to be on stage and I, I was hugely influenced by John Hegley. It got me started, it taught me a lot and then the minute I was booked to do a support gig with John Hegley, I dropped it because I 
wouldn't dare to sully his atmosphere with my inferior... One thing, though, if, if you're reciting a poem and it's dying... It's not like a joke where you can kill that joke and move on to the next one and have those pool, Frank Skinner's pools of light working... Unless, of course, you never died in the middle of a poem, in which case, muzzle tough. I think I rarely did, but actually, they were very short. Oh. I mean, sometimes, sometimes... Are any of them still in your head? You know where I'm going. There was one I, I revived, which was all about that slightly studenty earnestness. Also, the, the, the notebook becomes a very good prop... Because sometimes they don't because know... as a poet, you've got to have... You've got to think. Declarative. And, yeah, Our and hands are out in front yeah. of us at this point, yeah. And sometimes, actually, the visual cue for people to laugh would be closing the notebook. Right. Because they go, oh, it's over. I didn't realise it was over. It was hanging in... Oh, and now we're joining some dots and connecting things. But, so there was one, I would say something very sort of mock-earnest. Uh, this poem is called Innocence. Jonathan is innocent. Cyril is innocent. Sarah is innocent. Bernard is innocent. And I would carry on making up names for as long as the tension in the room would be suspended. And just doing that could start to tickle an audience because yeah. I can't believe he's still doing this becomes a thing. And when that person laughs and you look at them in a kind of like, yeah, what? This is my serious poem. Other people start to laugh, and so it becomes a sort of playful thing. So I just carry on doing that for a long, long time, and then eventually, Stephen is innocent. This poem is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. And close the book. And that used to get a, a big laugh. And it's, I mean, it's the whole thing's a MacGuffin and a play on itself, and it doesn't mean anything. And, but you could bail early. And it, it worked if you did three names in the punchline. And it worked if you did 12 names in the punchline. So it had that kind of play in it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You are now associated with PowerPoint screens, images. Yeah. The, the new tour that you're about to uh, go on... Hang on, I've got to find... You could tell what they are. I'll tell you. you. It's when actually... Great it's... PowerPoint comes great responsibility point. Yes. Did I do that all right? Yeah, you did, yeah. A lot of people stumble. Um, myself You've included. already done a whole bunch of these days, yeah, and, this, this and you keep the, adding them. This you is the third, to do... leg of, the third and final leg of touring with this show. We had to pull up sticks and stop, because I was making a series, so we, we're now sort of uh, returning to the road with it. A series which, by the time this drops, I think, will be on... Uh, uh, very possibly, yes, yeah. uh, called Terms and Conditions Apply. Um, 
think we're due to start on the 21st or something right. like that. So, yeah. so we beautifully timed this. Absolutely, to perfect. To your material. <laughs> How lovely of you, thank you. I know. So I, I've, I feel like I've sort of reinvented what I do three, four or five times. And I said to my manager one time, I'm, I'm not going to do a regular stand-up show in Edinburgh again. I'm just going to do something different. I think if I'm going to take a financial risk, the creative risk should match it. And he said, what are you going to do? And I've got this idea, I'm going to do a, a show about Ian, an Ian Jury song. I said, what are you on about? I said, reasons to be cheerful. I was listening to it, there's about 50-odd reasons to be cheerful. If I do a show where I analyse whether or not each of them is a reason to be cheerful, and I say hello at the beginning and goodbye at the end, and I deal with the person whose mobile phone goes off in the 12th minute, that's an hour, that's got to be an hour. And he was like, is there a more fashionable song you could do? Something in the top 10? <laughs> It's my childhood. That's, that means something to me. That's important. So I set off in this journey to do this. It completely changed when I started doing it because it was seen as a big creative risk. And it's weird because with hindsight, I don't think it feels like one because Edinburgh is full of these sort of shows now. Taking no credit, but, but it wasn't then. What year are we talking? 90-something? Uh, yeah, 90-something. 97? And back then, you did it on an overhead projector and a slide projector, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So we call that analog. Absolutely. They were like, you've got to preview this early, because if this is a big mistake, you don't want to go for four weeks in Edinburgh and die in your ass and tank financially doing this. So in March of that year, like before you have to put anything in the Fringe programme, I did a, my first preview of it. Again, this is so tied to the time. 1997, you couldn't Google the lyrics to a song. So when I did my first preview, I'd be like, I'd gone through verse one and I was into verse two or something. And I'd, and I'd go, now, you, it's hard to hear that lyric. I was sort of playing them little bursts of the song at, at a time. Uh, so what I did to try and find it, and I told them the story about going to the British Library and getting an old copy of Smash Hits from it. And it I, I was going to say, Smash yeah. Hits must be these songs. And it, and it not being in there, trying to find and one issue being missing and then finding it in my childhood bedroom at home on the way back to Manchester from the library and whatever. And all of that story became more interesting than the material I'd written about the lyrics. And it was like a hostage situation that night. I, I thought I was going on, try an hour, see if it, if it works. Two hours later, they're going, get off stage, get off stage. <laughs> but the audience were completely in it. And they really were, they yeah, were right. It, it was, Two it was, hours without an interval? Yeah, and the theatre were going, we've got to go home now. To me, it was proof of concept. It was like, I haven't written this show yet, but there's, you can see an audience engage with that idea instantly and get hooked in. But after that, I was like, the true stories are funnier than the material. And slowly, it's really counterintuitive, I took all the jokes out. And every time I took the jokes out, the truth got funnier. Because the minute you told a joke that was Badum Tish joke, the audience have a code where they go, oh, yeah, that's funny, but he's making stuff up to be funny. And then when they hear the true bit, they go, oh, he's probably making this up to be funny. It's not that funny, is it? It's not that funny. Taking the jokes out and putting the proof in that it was true elevated the comedy of the truth. And so instead of doing a show where I went through each lyric and analysed it, I did a show where it was basically a documentary of how to make a show that didn't exist, <laughs> telling the story of all the research I'd done and places I'd gone, going for the lyrics. So I had to have proof. So I'd have photos on one, like an old... You know, slide projector with an arm, yeah. pushing them on, photocopy documents onto, and things. And I was running between the two, and suddenly I was being written about as having invented documentary comedy. 
So, you know, um, for the sake of the microphones, the door opens. It's a Friday lunchtime, which is a big day at Guildhall, Hawksmoor, as the city decides not to go back to its desk for the rest of the day. Yeah. So every time the door opens, we're basically hearing the entire of the world financial services on the piss. I came in before service had started in the main dining hall, and people were... I'd never seen them doing it before a big piece of string and they were aligning the tables and somebody was walking between them with another piece of string making sure the tables were all equidistant from one another and that attention to detail um, well that's what happens at, at, at Windsor Castle when they've got a banquet mm. they have rulers and things yeah. and here at Hawksmoor they may not be in full regalia although Josh you're looking beautiful um, they, but they do measure everything yeah, I, like, I like that attention, very theatrical, I like it so here we've got the rump and then I did you a prime rib also. Beautiful. So prime rib essentially is a ribeye on the bone because mm-hmm. um, it's still in the bone and all that fat there and because we're using a charcoal grill mm-hmm. really renders down that fat and that's where you get all your flavour from. After that I've just dropped down the beef dripping fries. So we deep fry them in, in beef dripping fat. Mm-hmm. Lots of flavour, loads of flavour there. Um, maple bacon, so that's um, thick cut bacon in a maple syrup. Buttered English greens. You've got bernays, peppercorn, our house made ketchup and then a little bit of a special for you there, Jay. Some anchovy hollandaise. As I'm aware, you like it so much. So there we I, go. I did once write in a review that you could take that and a good friend into a room and have a nice time. Very good. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it, guys. Thank you very much. I hope that's a joke you reuse. <laughs> yeah, on a, on a couple of occasions. The content itself, you talked about your drama teacher saying, turn up the time and always carry a pencil. Now, the product seems to be the mind... I'd almost call it journalistic. Hmm that you are a reporter in a certain way, reporting on the weirdness of the world. Yeah. But you've suggested that you don't actually carry a pencil and you're not walking around with a notebook scribbling down notes going, ah, that will be material yeah. for show 27. Um, no, I never do. Um, I used to, uh, in my stand-up days, carry a notebook. And I actually think it's sort of... If you tell true stories, for them to be true stories... Halfway through a story, you shouldn't be thinking, ooh, this might be a story, because you've changed it. You've changed the reality of your decision-making or whatever. I did once have some material that addressed this. I talked about a moment where I'd gone to post a letter and I had my keys in my hand as I went to post the letter and the possibility that the keys might drop in and then going, oh, maybe I should do that because I'll get material out of it. And the kind of the, that's a perverse place to be. Because it's only a true story if you drop your keys in. It's not, it's not a funny story if you chose to drop your Although keys in. Although you have actively done some of those. So there was the one where you did posting a whole load of money in a windowed envelope to see how much of it would get back to you. Yes, but there's no, that's, not an, that's not a thing that can happen by accident. No. And a lot of what I have done has been, I wonder what happens if I do this? And what TV always wants to know is, but what's going to happen? And I, well, if I know what's going to happen, I'm not curious about what's going to happen. <laughs> and they want you to have a guaranteed result before you do it. But if you know what the outcome will be, what's the point in doing it? Was that part of the appeal of working for UK TV and Dave? Were they, because it's a smaller operation, were they more willing to let you take the risk? Completely, completely. Uh, we won battles during the first series that we would never have won elsewhere, I think. Right. And they are, they are a very supportive place. And actually... Turns out you can get as many people watching it in the week if you show it three times on Dave as would watch it in one showing on Channel 4 or whatever. You know, it sort of adds up to the same number of people. But they are much more up, up for taking risks. And doing things like that 
thing you mentioned about we, we posted currency in transparent envelopes. So we put a £50 note in an envelope with a big window in it and post it to someone to see if it gets through. The theory being that it's so obvious that money's in there that people actually sit and go, I'm being tested. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely delivering this one. Oh, God. Whoa, who's watching me? Because it's just sort of screaming. Almost all of it got to its destination. Every right? single bit of it did. Really? But what actually happened is they, it turns up in sealed envelopes without windows. Someone at the post office has gone, no, 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 this is too risky. Cover it up and send it. So they, they turned up and we opened it live in the studio in your one-shot recording, which is a sort of thing that telly people hate because they don't know if their show's got an ending or not. They don't know whether it's a happy ending, a sad ending. Whatever. They want to know what's in the fucking envelopes. And it's so... I'm really lucky to have landed working with a bunch of people who go, yeah, that, go on. Go on, let's see what we do. Go on, let's see. But you will drill down on things which perhaps, what's the word, are designed to fool us. So, I mean, a classic one was um, I worried about this deeply because I have been a talking head on a TV, you know, look yeah, back yeah. at the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you managed to get a bunch of faces to tell you all about a show that hadn't actually appeared from the, was it from the yeah, 80s? Yeah, they were talking about a perfume advert. That's it, a perfume that advert. That we had made. That you had made. Um, what were you trying to do there? We were trying to... I don't, I don't think those people came out of it badly. I think they looked like pros. And well, that was the thing. You, you did it in a very good-natured way. Because but I, I, I was projecting like bloody mad watching that, thinking... How would I feel if that was me and whether it could have been me? I, I would be very happy for any of those people to watch that show and I think they would come away from that going, OK, I mean, they duped me, they lied to me, but he has made me not look like an ass." I think the thing with those shows, as you well know if you've done them, is people are remembering stuff that they've just been shown and prompted and nudged about and everyone looks like they have perfect recall of things from the 70s but actually they've just been shown it and told a bit of detail about it and, and it's performative, it's not, yeah. it's not genuine. And to illustrate that, here are four people that we've said reminisce about this, we've shown them some real things and now here's a fake one and they're all going to have perfect recall of it and they're going to talk about how it was a really politically incorrect ad, incorrect ad and how it was, oh, it's so of its time, isn't it, and whatever. And they all did. Who was the, who, there was one particular person who was a real pro at it. Paul Ross was the... Was Paul the Ross, that's absolute, it. Absolute master of, of this yeah. stuff. I think anyone watching it would actually go, yeah, Paul Ross is really good at that. I don't think anyone... Book him now. I don't, <laughs> I don't think a single person watched that and went, Paul Ross, you dick. I think everyone watching it went, my God, he's right, he is really good at that, isn't he? <laughs> I genuinely think that's it, and it was important to me for that to be on the screen. It isn't, ah, look at, we got you. And now a word from our sponsor, which in this case is me. I've got a new book out. It's called My Last Supper, One Meal, A Lifetime in the Making, in which I attempt to answer the one question I've been asked most often, what would my last meal on earth be? I go out in search of the ingredients. It does include pig. And I tell the stories behind them. It's available now in hardback, ebook, and audio formats. And I'm also on tour with a live show based on the book. For tickets and info, visit jrayner.co.uk. And now back to Out to Lunch. You talked in the past about not having an ambition to have children until you met your partner and now you have a child. Yeah. Who is clearly quite young. Yes. Has that 
process changed your approach to the world as you're no longer the only one living in it? I don't, I don't think so, really. The only thing it did briefly was there was a bit of material in series five of Goodish where I analysed Topsy and Tim with the rigour that I would normally analyse Holmes under the hammer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just, I'm watching different stuff. It's not that the approach is different or... What have you found in Topsy and Tim? I'm, my kids are now 20 and 15, oh, so yeah, yeah. I'm well past that. There was an episode where they moved house and they changed their opening titles. But the opening titles had this sort of cartoon map and, that turned into a real-world photo of, as we sort of zoomed in on it and things. And by putting these two opening titles together, we could prove that they'd moved about 150 yards. And so this episode about we're moving house and everyone waving them off. <laughs> they were only 100 Those people are waving them off sprint. They can get there before them because there's an alley that? here and they've gone round this corner and that corner to get there. And, and was that suddenly because you were sitting there with your darling beloved child? Yeah. Knackered, staring at the screen and almost trying to interest yourself. In yeah, what you're absolutely. And you know what? Uh, genuinely, last night we were doing story time and my wife was reading my story and I was lying on the bed next to him as she was reading this story and he's got a, a, a Goldilocks and the Three Bears book. And in this particular book, when the bears go out in the morning because their porridge is too hot, they've got washing on the line. And then Goldilocks turns up and goes in and eats the porridge and sits on a chair and goes to the bed. And, and at the end, the bears come in. And I don't know if this is canon, but in this version of the book, uh, she runs away in fear. And what did the bears do? They made some more porridge. That's the end of the book. And as she's running away, there is no washing on the line that was on the line when she turned up. And our son, who is not yet four, pointed it out. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife went, he's yours. <laughs> it did seem like a very well, unusual only... thing for a four-year-old to, to put up on. You sure she wasn't protesting too much? No, <laughs> they, uh... <laughs> I have been asking for proof. <laughs> oh, this here time. it is. Josh is a dessert menu. Yes. yes. Could, lots we, of could we be tempted? I think we could. I think we should. Yeah. Why not? Thank you. There is one which is worth pointing out, and you'll like this. As a man mm -hmm. deeply steeped in television, Yeah. what do you think the ambassador's reception is? A the dodgy chocolate. 1980s TV advert, but they can't call it that. Oh, ambassador, you really are spoiling us. Oh, right, OK, yes, OK, yes. Very well yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what? My head went somewhere very different. Did it? Until I saw the words adverts... I was thinking about a disgraced former TV presenter who might have been called the Ambassador, but he wasn't called the Ambassador. His mother was called the Duchess. I think we should probably leave it there and, <laughs> uh, and move on. I was like, oh, no, oh, it can't God. be, can it? No, um, no, it really isn't. Yeah, and I'm delighted that it isn't. Right, um, I don't know why I'm I'll go the uh, strawberry tart, please. And I'll go the lemon meringue bomb. Lemon ripple ice cream, lemon curd, lemon granita. God, my life shit. <laughs> can I get a coffee at the same time? Yeah, of course you can. Just a, a regular uh, Americano with milk. With milk, yeah. yeah. Can I get a large espresso? Yes. Double. Double espresso. Thank you. Thank you very much. No problem at all. Does Beth ever worry about the intensity of what you do? So she hasn't ever said, you know, couldn't you just give it a rest, do something easier? The decision to stop, I, uh, no part of me would, would suggest I was henpecked into it. Uh, it was absolutely the right thing to start. I was doing about 100 hours a week for about eight months a year to make yeah, which, show, is insane. which is not healthy yeah. so her concern was my health 
because I would be, because I used to build all the PowerPoint, when I have a day of working on stuff with people, I'd go to my shed, I had a shed office, and I would work sometimes till five in the morning, like just making this thing, because it's such a laborious process. And then I'd be at my desk again by nine, and then I'd do another day, and then I'd go back and work in the shed till three or four. And there were, there were many times, every single executive who worked on that series has been in a meeting with me where I've been 48 hours without sleep. And I'm slightly babbling and incoherent because 48 hours without it's sleep. It's not healthy. It's not healthy. It's a really, really unhealthy thing to do. So that was her concern, was just going, please don't. I don't want that. Just stop, you know? Like, it's, it's silly. Please stop. And obviously she was right. And I just, I, I knew from, from... Are you an obsessive? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I... Stay with the obvious yeah, yeah, by yeah. this point. I, I barely needed to ask the question. Yeah. I knew when I started Series 5 it was going to be the last series. They, were, they spent all of Series 5 trying to lobby me to... To do more, and I spent all of Series Five going. This is the last one, guys, because this is not sustainable. Um, and and it's a really rare moment, I think, of a telly show ending and everyone still being friends. <laughs> you know, there's, there's normally it's gone wrong somewhere. It's normally imploded in some way, or you've had your job taken from you, or something. Yeah. There's a bit of bitterness and well, acrimony, and the numbers have completely collapsed yeah, and yeah, yeah. washed and, up and has. But in fact, you're about to come back to explain what the new series, terms and conditions. Um, Term and Conditions Apply is a show where I have three guests on uh, comics. Basically, I sort of, with a bit of material that is my sort of material, I've got my PowerPoint there, it's me doing what I do, I open up an area for conversation and at some point, quiz questions, guesses, basically trying to see if they can pass this world that I struggle to understand also. Pass as in P-A-R-S-E. Yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah. Understand. Should we go for that? Yeah, <laughs> uh, that'll, that'll do, thank you, uh, for simplifying my stupid, contorted language. Not at all, any time, here to help. So, for example, there's, a, there's that thing journalists do, um, a popular orange vegetable. Mm-hmm. So you're writing an article about carrots... And the second paragraph will say, the popular orange vegetable has been yeah, a finding another because you the, can't use the same term. Yeah, which is bollocks, because you can say carrots again. Especially if it's an article about carrots, nobody thinks you're stupid for using the word carrots five times. It's absolutely fine. The, the, the big one in my business is uh, when you get to the point and you use the word eatery <laughs> yeah. for restaurants. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a very goodish area to examine and open the bonnet on. And then at some point, we go through... Effectively, basically, the Wikipedia page for carrots, which I will read, and every time the word carrot appears, one of them has to replace it with something. <laughs> with a cinema of so some kind. Yeah, or of their a, own devising. So it sort of becomes a parlour game. One of my favourite moments in it, I was watching an edit of one on the train on my way up, which is an awfully fraught situation that anyone might look over your shoulder and see your laptop and see your own face on the screen and what you're, you're doing. So I was, like, cowering in the corner doing, a, like, edit notes on one of the shows. And the guests on that particular show are uh, Carrie Ad Lloyd, uh, Phil Jupitus, and uh, Jimmy Carr. And we did that. We did the synonyms for carrot. So the, the first three, the sentence begins, the carrot. So I say the, pause. And Carrie Ad says, snowman's noses. <laughs> and it gets a really nice line. Two or three beats, Phil. The apricot vitamin torpedo. <laughs> nice laugh. Two, three, four beats Jimmy, vegan dildo. <laughs> and huh, we've just got three personalities distilled perfectly 
in a really short format thing, the space between those jokes is tiny, the laughs are big, and absolutely, they are unique to those individuals. That's a really lovely... You could have put them on a board, pointed three and say... <laughs> yeah, well, everyone knows who's done what. Yeah. It, it, it's a show in my world with other people. My desserts are arriving. And yeah. they look pretty spectacular. So, Josh, what have I got in front of me? So you've got in front of you a lemon bomb. So at the bottom we start, we've got lemon cream, then we've got a lemon meringue, and in the bottom of that we've got lemon granita. And then in that we've got lemon segments, a lemon ripple ice cream, lemon lemon curd, and then on top we've got lemon zest, and then and then that's... Yeah, that's yeah that'll do. That, that, that's <laughs> the lemon taken... Practically, when I was saying it's full of lemon, they've gone all out lemon. Is that, lemon. Is that lemony enough for you, Jay? It's, it's, it is a citrus adventure. <laughs> an adventure in lemon. Thanks and then on the other side you've got... Custard tart, glazed with golden caster sugar, um, strawberry strawberry sorbet, fresh strawberries, strawberry sauce, and then that over the top of that, we've just got some lime zest. Very nice indeed. I'm hoping you're enjoying it. I am very much. Right, Thank fantastic. you, Josh. So the key question: talk about eating out. What is your go-to when you're on the road and you've finished a gig, or do you try and eat before? Nothing's ever open when we finish. It isn't, is it? No. Um, my, my view is we have to give thanks for the Indian restaurateurs of Britain yeah. because if anything's open, they are. Yeah. You so, you're so love a venue that gives you a hot meal before. If we turn up and they go, we've got a shepherd's pie if you want it, we're over the moon because normally you're turning up and there's some supermarket sandwiches in the fridge and there's always a ham and cheese and a chicken and an egg and... It's just so samey day after day after day. So is it, is it totally unreasonable for me to suggest that this has been better than many of the meals you've eaten after a gig? It is. It's better than many of the meals I've eaten for about five years. It's, uh, <laughs> it's absolutely delicious. One thing I did, and this is, this is how growing up changes touring, I've taken a, a juicer goes with us in the van now. Because we have to have a big van, because we've got the screen and the projector and some merch and stuff. We can't, it's not just a car. We have to have a big load of kit. So we've got space for extra stuff. So I pack a dartboard with some kit that can go on the back of the dressing room door so that I've got something to do for the hour before the show starts. And a juicer and a steamer. And we put on our rider fresh fruit. And if nothing else, we can have something healthy once a day on tour and that's what happens when you're approaching 50 it used to be some few bottles of cheap lager and now it's fresh fruit please oh the glamour yeah where did it all go right yeah touring yeah it's kind of good ish uh, <laughs> only remains for me to say Dave Gorman thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch it's absolutely my pleasure thank you very much yeah, it probably is um, it is I do hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you want more, there is more. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. We would really appreciate it if, having consumed them, you were then to review them and give them five stars and tell all your friends about them. And please do subscribe. Then you'll get every single episode as it drops. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marie. Rotra. The producer is Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time it's screenwriter extraordinaire and the king of Doctor Who, Russell T Davis. I'm going to be my self-help book. How can I find a husband? Have them. <laughs> and one of them you'll wake up with the next the morning. Have, have them. them. Have them. Oh and I met some lovely boys along the way.